1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, Director of Audio here. And in this special episode, we're looking back at some of our favourite asks and answers of 2019. We asked big names some of the big questions. Where does power lie in America? Who'll decide the fate of Hong Kong? And what's the recipe for the restaurant of the future? The impeachment of Donald Trump and ever-looming Brexit deadlines dominated the headlines this year. I spoke to presidential hopefuls, central bankers, novelists, filmmakers, a Nobel Peace Prize winner and a relationship therapist. The race for 2020 started in 2019 with full force. A crowded field of Democratic presidential hopefuls introduced themselves to the American public. Although high-profile contenders like Beto O'Rourke and Kamala Harris dropped out, late additions like the billionaire CEO Michael Bloomberg have eagerly taken their place. One of the more surprising candidates to emerge as a serious contender for the Democratic nomination is Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. If elected, he'd become the youngest president ever, aged just 38. I interviewed him back in June and I asked him what he thought America's role in the world should look like.
2: Well, we should never hesitate to speak to reprehensible behavior. But it's also the case that the allocation of blame is not America's primary security responsibility. Uh, it is stabilization and the prevention of war. And that will be my focus. As somebody who believed five years ago when I was in uniform leaving Afghanistan that I was one of the very last troops turning out the lights and notices that we are still there and perhaps, I'm afraid, not that far away from learning of the first American casualty of this conflict who was actually born after 9-11 We've got to have a way to put an end to endless war and the foundations of our security strategy for the Middle East and across the world have to reflect a higher bar for what it would take for us to use or threaten to use American military force.
1: But it's not only Democrats hoping to unseat President Trump in 2020. Some Republicans have their eyes on the White House as well. A small handful of Republican candidates hope that their own brand of conservatism can attract enough people to vote for them but with the president's approval rating among Republicans near 90%, they face an uphill challenge. My colleague John Prudeau, the Economist's US editor, interviewed the outspoken conservative radio talk show host and former Trump ally Joe Walsh, who's hoping to unseat the president next year.
0: I would say my brand of free market conservatism, it hasn't moved on, but it's hiding under the bed right now. The Republican Party is not a party. The Republican Party is a cult. Donald Trump is increasing the debt faster than Barack Obama did. Man, when I was in Congress, we would take Obama's head off. Uh, when we talked about all the debt he was adding. Now my Republican colleagues, they don't say squat about Trump. And and look, maybe I'm not the biggest, greatest name in the world to challenge Trump. Maybe Mitt Romney could have. Maybe John Kasich, maybe a bigger name, could have. But they were afraid to. And that's why I'm telling my former Republican colleagues now, we have to stand against Trump now. Because if we don't, these things we believe in, they may not come back for a long, long time because Trump's not going away.
1: One of the notable names not running for president next year is the Democrat Stacey Abrams. She was the first African-American woman to win a major party nomination for governor in 2018 in Georgia. Abrams narrowly lost to the incumbent, who she accused of suppressing non-white votes. And I asked her how identity politics is affecting the debate
3: it's hard to miss it. Uh, I am a tall, sturdy black woman. I have no issue with that being part of the conversation. But when it is the entirety of the conversation and there is no analysis of then why that matters, that's the problem. We have had white men run for office for centuries the conversation about them being white men is not the only part of the conversation. What then happens next is that we go to their policies. What happens for communities that are outside the norm is that we begin and end the analysis with simply their difference from white men. My contention is not that the press should be exempt from acknowledging the difference, but that they should be held accountable for talking about why that difference exists. I, I think it's deeply disingenuous to assume that simply identifying the phenotypic markers are sufficient conversation about politics. My identity matters because of what it tells me about my politics and what I need to deliver for the communities I represent. But it also matters when I do things that go outside of what you would consider a constraint because of my identity. I campaigned in largely black communities, but I also campaigned in the area where they filmed the American film Deliverance, which is a largely white rural community. I campaigned everywhere and I never left my identity behind.
1: But identity politics goes well beyond the ballot box. Ursula Burns was the first black woman to run a Fortune 500 company as CEO of Xerox. In our interview, she explained to me how she came to change her mind on diversity quotas.
3: I've been in business for almost 40 years, and we have been talking about this problem. We're half the population. We're not anywhere near half. We're not even 10%. There are more CEOs named John than there are CEO women. You know, you heard all of that stuff. We have been pushing against this thing for, for a long time with the belief that if we just let them alone and give them the facts that they, the system, will change. Don't you get it? If we just kind of lay it out and give them the facts. So why hasn't it worked? Because the they who are giving the facts to don't believe it's urgent enough to change it. That's why I say maybe what you do is to start mandating things. Growing
1: calls for diversity haven't just been aimed at politics in the boardroom. Editor-in-chief of Vogue, Anna Winter, has been the gatekeeper of high style for more than 30 years. In that time, the image of a catwalk supermodel has evolved dramatically.
3: If you look at the shows today, the casting is so much more diverse in terms not only of skin color but also of shape. And I I think if I look back, say, in some of the shows in the 90s where you're absolutely correct, it was very much one look. And that's so much what designers actually were, were, I believe, celebrating because in the 80s it was much more about individuality and the the height of the supermodel and then you moved into the 90s and I think they were looking for something that was less about the girl or the man on the runway and more about the clothes but I I think particularly among a younger generation of designers who are casting in a completely different way they're not just casting from the agencies they're casting from the street or from their friends it is a celebration of all body types and all skin colors and I, I think that that is a huge change
1: Meanwhile, back on this side of the pond, 2019 was supposed to have been the year of Brexit. Yes, Britain was due to have Brexited by March 2019. Its failure to do so ultimately led to the resignation of Prime Minister Theresa May. During the jostling to become the next Conservative leader, I spoke to Conservative MPs Jacob Rees-Mogg, Rory Stewart and the now former Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. The word that all broadcasters had to get our tongues around was prorogation – which meant briefly suspending Parliament, in this case, to allow the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, to try to ram through his Brexit legislation. I asked Jeremy Hunter, major figure in the debate, what he had thought of the controversial tactic.
2: My view is that Parliament has already shown that it won't allow no deal. It's already passed a bill over the government's head, taking control of the order paper in Parliament, completely unprecedented, um, in order to require the Prime Minister. Has
1: Parliament overstepped?
2: Well, you know, I personally think that uh, Parliament should leave these matters to the executive. But we are a parliamentary democracy. We have to follow the law. And if Parliament makes a law, even the Prime Minister has to follow it. So I think it is very unrealistic to think that Parliament wouldn't do that again.
1: Uh, We have one candidate in the race, uh, Dominic Raab, saying that he would prorogue – interesting word that we've all got to get our tongues around now here in the UK – basically he would uh, disband temporarily Parliament if Parliament were blocking us leaving uh, the EU in a no-deal scenario. Would you follow him?
2: Uh, I don't think that would work. I think the idea in a democracy that uh, if you don't like what Parliament's doing, you just close down Parliament – Um, the government might have some technical legal powers to allow it to do that. But we prorogue Parliament when there's a Queen's speech and you suspend Parliament for a week, 10 days, uh, while uh, the Queen's speech is being drawn up and then the Queen arrives to reopen Parliament. But to do it because you wanted to force through a no-deal Brexit seems to be something that would be uh, pretty impossible to imagine ever working.
1: What do you think the view of the Queen would be?
2: Well, that's something you'd have to ask the Queen. But, uh, you know... So I she be the next and,
1: booking, but you know the system very well.
2: I, I think what we, do you think the
1: view of... And it does actually figure here, because in the end she opens Parliament. What would her view be?
2: Well, I think uh, all governments should seek to inv- avoid involving the Queen in these kinds of party political issues. That is what our constitution depends on.
1: The widening gap between the rich and poor across the world has fueled outrage about inequality. Leading the charge of the revolt against the rich was the journalist and author Anand Jiridharadas. At an Intelligence Squared live event, I asked him whether there's a place for all those billionaire philanthropists heading to Davos in January to solve the world's problems.
4: I have a feeling, I have I, never taken a survey, but I have a feeling that girls in Africa are tired of being empowered by men in Davos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think girls in Africa like have this figured out. I, I called this January while Davos was going on. I, I called for it to be, well, right before it went on, I called for it to be canceled. Uh, that did not happen. Um, I called for then this to be the last. We're not sure that that's going to happen. It probably won't, as you can imagine. And the reason I did was, well, many people would, would agree it's a bit of a spectacle. It's not doing maybe as much good as they pretend. But is it problematic or is it just yeah. kind of an irritating sideshow? That's an interesting question. And I think... Probably the default assumption we have is it's an irritating sideshow. They're going there to perform, and they're not really necessarily doing the things they say they do. There are many sincere people there also. Let's not, you know, a, a lot of good human rights people and, and whatever go there because they have raised money from the plutocrats. But I actually started to think that these things are actively problematic, and let me, let me explain why. If you are a very, very wealthy person who benefits from some of the policies I talked about earlier, austerity, low taxes, deregulation, um, not having... Competition enforcement, so you have one company for shopping, one company for search, one company for this and that. If you benefit from those policies, and you know there's a lot of public pressure out there in a lot of places to actually reverse those policies, question those policies, right? If you, as a rich person, just sit in your velvet robe in your English country house or your house in Greenwich, Connecticut, right, and just go on Twitter and make videos while smoking a cigar and drinking brandy about how you really think taxes should be kept low. I don't think your opinion is gonna help you, right? I think that's actually gonna backfire. I think people would raise your taxes as soon as they saw that video, right? Yeah, you're not much of a loss to the PR industry on that one. Correct. So I think what it becomes very important to do is first, as a plutocrat, acquire a respectability on social questions that gives you the authority when talking about your own interests to sound like someone who should be listened to. And that takes work. So what does that? Empowering girls in Africa does that.
1: Protests in Hong Kong began this spring against an extradition bill, which would have allowed criminal suspects in the territory to be handed over for trial in mainland China. But the demonstrations evolved into a popular revolt against rule from Beijing. Former Chief Secretary of Hong Kong, Sun Chan, spoke to me about the likelihood of bringing democracy to China
5: it 's actually probably more difficult now to introduce democracy into China than it was a hundred years ago, simply because of all these decades of first nationalist, which was very much Leninist rule and then communist rule that basically had changed a lot. many people are afraid of the outcome of democracy now, and they are worried that China might disintegrate. And then, Would that be your view? There is certainly that danger. But I, through my studies in the early period, nearly two decades of democracy, I, I also feel that the Chinese are very sensible people. And there is, has always been a tradition of selecting the political elite through some fair competition. Because traditional Chinese elite were selected through these imperial exams that were open to all male, poor or richer, whatever family background. There was this tradition which explains partly how China transformed from monarchy to democracy peacefully without bloodshed. I mean, today, a lot of that has changed. And we also have to see how much resistance the, the ruling elites put up against this process,
1: how determined they are. 2019 hasn't all been about growing division, though. Some of the guests on The Economist asked this year have offered ways to bring people together. And what better place to start than where I am right now, the office. Psychotherapist turned podcaster Esther Perel offered me advice on how best to manage my team. So I asked her if she had one piece of relationship advice for everyone listening. I'm not going to give you a technique or a
5: tactic. I'm going to give you a thought. If you want to change the other the fastest route is to change yourself. Because a relationship is a feedback loop. If I always do X, you are bound to always do Y. If I don't want you to do Y, what is probably more conducive to your changing is me doing something else. You cannot continue to do the same if I change. And sooner or later, you will begin to do something else as well. If I'm always critical... I don't have to be surprised that you are defensive. If I don't want you to be defensive, instead of just telling you stop being defensive, maybe I can change the
1: way I'm telling you what I have to
5: say. It's quicker and it's more effective.
1: That's it for our whistle-stop tour of 2019 on The Economist Asks. We'd love to know what you think, whether your relationship with our programme has grown stronger than it was before and what you might like more or less of from us. So do leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And for your New Year's resolutions, do subscribe to The Economist. We're at economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for $12 or 12 of your English pounds. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist.